All right, turn to Romans chapter 2. We are finally done with chapter 1. Seemed like it was forever. Now we're jumping into Romans chapter 2. As many of you may know, when I was at A&M, I studied mechanical engineering, and I found that to be a pretty tough degree at A&M. There were a number of classes that I really struggled with, a few classes in particular that even after a semester of studying the material, I don't feel like I ever wrapped my mind around. I remember one class called Fluid Mechanics. I don't know if any of you have had that class. It was the bane of my existence. Yes, that is exactly what I think of it. Bane of my existence for a semester. Could not figure out that class. And I remember walking into classes like that and taking tests and doing horribly, getting grades like a 65. 65. Like That means I got less than two-thirds of the test right. Horrible grade. But here's the good news. For engineering students, Professors grade tests on a curve. They grade a test on a curve. And as poorly as I understood fluid mechanics, I understood it better than my classmates. So my 65 got me an A. I was thrilled at that. That happened over and over again. I failed the test but got an A because I beat the curve. Now, for those of you who are not engineers or not engineering students, that should concern you a little bit. Because there are a lot of things in your life that you count upon that engineers designed. Like bridges, airplanes, pacemakers, you're probably not okay with a, a bridge that you're driving over being 65% sound. That's, that shouldn't be okay with you. Uh, and you really shouldn't get on a plane that's only built of 65% good parts. And uh, you really don't want to hear your doctor say to you after surgery, well, that pacemaker we put in you, it's got a 65% chance of working. Don't worry about the other 35%. No, bridges, airplanes, pacemakers, you count on them. They need to be 100% right, but that's not what I cared about. As an engineering student, all I cared about was that I beat the average and got an A. Now, that mindset is not just prevalent among engineering students. It's actually prevalent among all of humanity. That mindset is actually how most people approach God. Most people approach God like an engineering test. Beat the average and you're good with God. Be better than most people and you'll be righteous in the eyes of God. Most people look at life like a bell curve. They look like, at life like this. It's a bell curve, and you don't want to be on Hitler's side of the bell curve. You want to be on Mother Teresa's side of the bell curve. If you beat the average, then you're good with God. That's how most of humanity views God, views righteousness on a sliding scale. Just beat the average, and you're good. Now, there's a lot of different ways to name this attitude. One of the names that you might give is self-righteous. This is the self-righteous man. This is how the self-righteous person thinks. Self-righteous, the the definition is there in the words. You're looking for righteousness in the eyes of God through self, through what you bring to the table. Your, Your good deeds and all the bad stuff that you avoid, you look at that as proof of your righteousness. If you are better than most people, then surely God will approve you. So the self-righteous person, he sees God this way. Uh, This is also true of the legalist. The legalist, what does legalism mean? Legalism is any attempt to earn God's approval by keeping a list. Earn God's love by keeping your list of commands, whether you found it in scripture, whether you you made it yourself. It's your attempt to earn merit before God by keeping the list. The, The perfect example of legalism in biblical days were the Pharisees. Pharisees, okay, Paul was one of them. Paul was a Pharisee before meeting Jesus. What did the Pharisees do? Well, they took the the whole Mosaic law, that's a big old chunk of your Old Testament, and they boiled it down to 613 commands, 613 commands that they memorized, and these were relatively rich men, and so they spent all day long, they didn't have to work, they spent all day long keeping their list. 
went through life keeping the 613 items on their list. And because they kept the list, they were righteous. Everyone else was wicked, but not them because they kept the list. That's legalism. Uh, Third name you might use to describe this mindset is religious. This is the religious man. The man who believes that by the practice of his religion, he earns God's approval. This is the person who goes to to temple or the mosque or the synagogue or the church because he believes that it makes him more righteous in the eyes of God. This could be a Hindu or or a Muslim or a Jew or even a Christian. The guy who, who thinks that he is right with God because he calls himself a Christian and does Christian kind of things, that's the religious man. He believes that through the practice of his religion, he is right with God. Now, for the sake of simplicity this morning, I'm going to refer to this whole mindset simply by the word self-righteous. That's really the the overarching term. The other two are just kind of different flavors of self-righteousness. So self-righteous, this mindset, how do you know if you fit into this camp? How do you know if you are approaching God in a self-righteous way? How do you know if that label fits you? Well, it's it's really easy to find out. Just ask yourself a a hypothetical question. I hope it's hypothetical. Imagine that on the way home from church today, you die. You die and you stand before God and God asks you, why should I let you in my heaven? How are you going to answer that question? If you answer that question by pointing to anything good you have done, my church attendance, my good deeds, my charitable giving, or by pointing to anything bad you have avoided. I didn't kill anyone, no adultery, no theft. If you answer that question by pointing to anything good you've done or bad you've avoided, then you are, by definition, self-righteous. You are looking to yourself as your measure and basis of righteousness before God. You are part of this mindset. Well, today's passage speaks to the self-righteous man. Paul speaks to the self-righteous man. He wants to bring the self-righteous before God and help the self-righteous man understand how does God view righteousness? In God's eyes, is righteousness a bell curve? Beat the average and you're good. Is that how God sees righteousness? Does God grade us on a curve? That's what our passage this morning will answer. But before we get to it, we need to review for a second. So in your Bibles, actually turn back to chapter 1. Look at verse 16. We're going to keep coming back to the big idea of Romans to keep it fresh in our minds. A summary of the whole book of Romans is verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1. Read that with me. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. The big idea of Romans, if you want to summarize it all together, is that the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God, that God is right in everything that he is and in everything that he does. That's what Romans is about, the righteousness of God. And every section of Romans, as we walk through this book, is going to unfold the righteousness of God for us. And and for the last few weeks and for the next couple weeks, we're in section one of the book of Romans. It goes from 118 through chapter three, verse 20, and it's about God's righteousness in judgment. God is righteous in condemning human sin. 
Now that section began with kind of the summary idea back in chapter 1, verse 18. Look at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So Paul starts this section by saying God's wrath is justly, righteously poured out from heaven against all human sin. And then if you were here a couple weeks ago, you know that Paul then walks us through in chapter 1 through the really big sins the really major sins, the most egregious sins that humans commit against God, idolatry and sexual immorality, homosexuality, murder, all the big sins. Now, you can kind of imagine that as Paul was walking people through chapter one and they heard all of these big sins, you can kind of hear the self-righteous guy in Paul's audience shouting, amen, you go, Paul. That's right, you call out those wicked people. You name their horrible sins. I'm with you, Paul. It's very natural for the self-righteous person to conclude that 118 through 32 doesn't apply to them. They don't commit the most egregious sins, so they're not part of that chapter. It's about other people. It's about the below average people of the world. Well, is that true? Paul's not content to just let them off the hook. And so he begins to address that that hypothetical self-righteous man in his audience. The man he can see standing up and shouting amen. Paul looks him squarely in the eyes in chapter 2 and talks directly to him. Pick it up with me, chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Paul begins our passage this morning with an indictment. You can picture chapter 2 as kind of a courtroom. It's God's courtroom. And Paul was just bringing the wicked people, the people that are clearly immoral into the courtroom. That was chapter one. But there's these people out in the stands shouting amen who are self-righteous. They believe they're better than other people. Well, now Paul brings them up. Paul brings them up before the judge and begins to lay out God's indictment of the self-righteous man. Self-righteous man, that's the guy who judges other people. Self-righteous man is the one who says, everybody else is is below average, I'm above average, therefore I am righteous. That's what self-righteous people do. They judge other people. They think that they're better than other people. That's really the root attitude Paul's getting at in our passages. Anyone who believes that he is better than other people. I'm better than you because I don't do that thing. I don't do that horrible thing, therefore I'm better. That's what Paul's going after in this chapter. And he says that this man, the self-righteous man who sits in judgment over other people, what's this guy's problem? Well, he is just as guilty as they are. Paul says, you're just as guilty before the bench of God, before God's judgment. Now, why are you just as guilty, Paul says? Because you practice the same things. You do the exact same things as, as all these people who you call worse than you, who you call below average. You do the same things they do. Now, Why can Paul say that? That that should give us pause for a moment. Remember who Paul's talking to. He's at church reading this letter and he imagines a guy standing up. This is a religious man. 
It's a man who comes to church. Uh, and, and this is a man who's, who's self-righteous. He hasn't committed the most egregious sins of chapter one. This isn't a drug dealer, not a murderer, not a sexually immoral man. So how can Paul say that he's committing the same sins as the people in chapter one? Well, you get the answer at the end of chapter one. Go back to the end of chapter one. Let's review there. Look at verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. Now, for a moment, look past the flagrant sins like murder. Look at the internal sins that Paul lists. Greed, envy, gossip, arrogant, boastful, unloving, unmerciful. Is there any human being who doesn't fall to one of those sins? No. When, when the bar of sin is raised to the level of thought and attitude like pride and envy, all of us fall short by that bar, by that definition, especially the self-righteous guy. Because what is the self-righteous guy doing? He is doing all these deeds to make himself look better than other people. What is that? That's pride. That's arrogant. That's lack of love, lack of mercy. By practicing his self-righteousness, he is committing the exact sins Paul just called out in chapter one. He is not outside of chapter one. He's right there in it. It reminds me, for those of you who've tried to teach kids to pray, I don't know if you've ever tried to do that. Teach little kids to pray in a group. Sit down a bunch of little kids and tell them, okay, I'm going to teach you to pray. Let's start by closing our eyes and bowing our heads, and then you pray. And then what happens as soon as the prayer ends? Every time. Every time, what happens? One kid raises his hands and says, little Johnny didn't close his eyes. Well, wait a minute. How how do you know that little Johnny didn't close his eyes? By tattling on little Johnny, you just told me that you are exactly as guilty as him. So it is with the self-righteous man. By comparing himself to other people, by thinking that he is above average, that act itself is sin. By thinking that he's above average, he's proving that no, he is exactly average. He's a sinner like everyone else. His sins are just more internal than other people's. The self-righteous man desperately needs to see that he is as guilty as everyone else. He needs to see sin as God sees sin. Now, that's actually something that Jesus spoke on often. If you've read the Gospels, you know that Jesus spoke on this sermon, on this topic, a great deal, um, particularly on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, is given for many reasons, but the biggest reason that Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount is to correct and challenge the false confidence of a self-righteous audience. Actually, if you want to understand the Gospels well, if you really want to understand the teachings of Jesus, you need to remember this. Jesus was almost always talking to a self-righteous audience. It was the Jews of the first century. They were self-righteous. They believed, hey, we're Jews. We practice Judaism. We're God's chosen people. We have the Old Testament. So clearly we are righteous. We're more righteous than other people. That was especially true of the leaders, the Pharisees. We're better than even the average Jews. So here's Jesus. He shows up to be Messiah, to bring salvation. And what do the Pharisees think? You come to bring us salvation. Why are you wasting your time? We're Pharisees. Come on, Jesus, look at us. 
We're way better than everybody else. Now, if you want to go save those wicked Gentiles over there, that's all right, although we'd really prefer you didn't do that because we hate them. Uh, But we really don't need your time. We don't need your salvation. We're Pharisees. We got this covered. So Jesus is speaking to self-righteous audiences, and he wants to correct their misunderstanding of God's righteousness. So in his most famous sermon, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus stands up, and speaks the following words to people who thought that they were righteous in God's eyes. One of the passages, Matthew 5, 21 through 22. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the supreme court. And whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. To the Pharisees, to the Jews, their standard was outward. Just don't kill someone. Jesus says, no, God's standard is inward. If you have hatred, if you have contempt for someone else, you are just as guilty as the murderer. Second famous passage. Uh, Matthew 5, 27 through 28. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What was their standard? Just don't commit adultery. What is God's standard? Now, your mind has to be pure. If you have an unrighteous desire towards a woman, you've already committed adultery. You are just as guilty as the adulterer. And then Jesus sums it up in Matthew 5, 20. He says, for I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I don't know if you realize, but those are fighting words. Back in first century Judea, those were fighting words. The Pharisees who ran the country, they thought of themselves as perfect, as righteous, and Jesus just said, no, all of their legalistic righteousness, their self-righteousness is valueless to God. They don't make the cut. They are not righteous enough to merit God's approval. They've all fallen short. You have to be much better than them if you want to have any hope of earning righteousness in the eyes of God. Jesus makes it clear that, that actions are not the only thing God cares about. He cares about your thoughts and attitudes just as much. If you fall short, either in action, in attitude, or in thought, then you are a sinner. You are a sinner who deserves the condemnation of God. That's really clear. Really, really clear. Paul wants the self-righteous man to understand you are not as good as you think you are. Your thought life condemns you as much as the outwardly immoral person. But unfortunately, that's something that the self-righteous person doesn't get. The self-righteous guy in Paul's audience, he is blind to this truth. He doesn't understand reality. He makes three errors in judgment that Paul lists out for us. Three things that he sees wrongly that he doesn't understand. First, in verse three, Paul tells us that this guy assumes that because I judge other people, I won't be judged. Self-righteous person assumes I'm on God's side. I I am judging the wicked of the world. I'm looking down upon them. So clearly, I won't be judged. I'm, I'm, I'm good with God. I'm on his side. Second mistake he makes. I am blessed, so I won't be judged. That's verse four. He looks at his life. God has blessed him. That was especially true of the Pharisees. Remember, these are rich guys. They look at their lives and conclude, man, God's blessing us. Life is good. So clearly, we're not going to be judged. Paul says, no. You guys have arrived at the wrong conclusion. The only reason that God has not stepped into your life in judgment is because he wants to give you time to repent. Take the the patience of God as grace, giving you time to turn from your sin and turn to God for salvation. Third mistake that the self-righteous person makes. Verse five, 
He believes that through his self-righteousness, he is earning a treasure of rewards to enjoy for eternity, when in reality, through his self-righteousness, he is earning God's wrath. That's, that's the saddest part of the whole passage so far, verse 5. This guy believes that by practicing his religion, he is earning reward from God in heaven. When in reality, through practicing self-righteousness, through doing good deeds to make himself look better than other people, what is he really earning? Wrath. Because his actions are sin. They're based on pride, on arrogance, on selfishness. And so he is storing up for himself a mountain of wrath in the day of judgment. That's a really sad thing. Really, really sad. This guy is blind to that reality. Verse 5 tells us why. Because he has become stubborn of heart. Actually, I I would prefer a better translation here. Literally, it reads heart of heart. That's biblically an incredibly important idea, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Human beings can become hard of heart. It's like our hearts become calloused, become covered with calluses. And as a result, we can no longer perceive truth. We can no longer feel God's conviction because this man has been practicing his self-righteousness for his entire life. He's been keeping the list for all of his life. He has become callous to the Lord. He no longer senses God's truth and conviction. He is blind to the fact that he is as guilty as everyone else. Paul's not ready to give up on him yet. Paul wants to help this self-righteous blind man see the truth of his situation. And so in the next part of our passage, Paul sits down with him. Very graciously, Paul sits down with this man and he says to this man, okay, I'm going to explain this indictment to you. I'm going to walk you through what you are being charged with. I'm going to help you understand what God is holding you accountable to. I think Paul sits down with the guy and he says, okay, okay, you believe that you can earn God's approval. You believe that you can live in a way where you merit God's love. Guess what? You're right. You can earn God's approval. That's possible. Yep, you can earn God's approval if you keep God's standard. So let's work together to find out what is God's standard. If you want to earn God's love, what do you have to do? That's where we pick up in verse six. Paul explains the indictment. The righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds? To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. Paul starts with quoting the Old Testament in verse 6. God will render to each person according to his deeds. That's actually a very common phrase. It appears many times in the Old Testament. That is how God always judges human beings. If you stand before God for judgment, if God is going to judge your righteousness, what does he do? Every time, he judges you based on your deeds. Verse 11, he doesn't show partiality. Jew and Greek, Christian, everybody stands before God on equal terms, and God evaluates their deeds. And notice the standard of this judgment. There are only two outcomes possible. This judgment results in one of two verdicts, either righteous. If God declares you righteous, what do you get according to this passage? Eternal life, glory, honor all really good stuff. But if God declares you unrighteous, what do you get? Wrath, indignation, tribulation, distress, really bad stuff. Well, clearly you want to be part of the first group. 
You want to be declared righteous by God. You want that to be your verdict, not unrighteous. If you're trying to earn it, if you want to earn the stamp of righteous, what must you do according to this passage? Well, look back again at, at, verse, at verse seven. To those who by perseverance in doing good. Perseverance in doing good. What Paul's saying is, it's not enough to do good from time to time. It's not enough even to do good most of the time. It's not even enough to do good 99% of the time. You must persevere in doing good. In other words, you must always do good. Opposite of verse nine, you must never do that which is evil. If you wanna be declared righteous by God based on your deeds, you must persevere throughout your life, all of your days in good. You must only do good. Jesus makes a similar point. Back to the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5 End of the chapter, verse 48, Jesus says, therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. You can earn God's approval. If you want to stand before God and earn the judgment of righteous, you can do it. What do you have to do though? You have to be as perfect as God is. You have to be as perfect all of your days as God is. In other words, in, in, the, in the grade of life and trying to approach God, righteousness does not look like a bell curve. Righteousness looks like this. For those of you who are scientists and engineers, it's a binary state. Either you got it or you don't. Either you are as righteous as God is or you are not righteous at all. Even if you're way better than Hitler, really, really close to Mother Teresa, you're still in the same boat. You're unrighteous. It's a binary state. You're either as righteous as God is or you're not righteous at all. So is it possible to earn God's approval? Well, theoretically, yes. But practically, no. It reminds me of that game at Fuddruckers. Uh, for you dads, you probably know what I'm talking about. The game where you move the crane to try to get a stuffed animal for your kid. You put 50 cents in that thing and you move the crane, you send it down and you try to pick up a stuffed animal. Uh, and I've done that many, many times and I, I've never won it. Not, not ever. Not ever have I gotten an animal. Uh, is it theoretically possible for me to get a stuffed animal? Yeah, it's theoretically possible. But practically, it's never going to happen for me. It's never going to happen. I might move a stuffed animal a little bit, but I'm never going to get it so perfectly aligned that I get an animal. That's just how it works. Practically speaking, it's not possible for me. So it is with this test. Is it theoretically possible to earn the declaration of righteous from God? Yes, it is. Is it practically possible? No, because we are all sinners. We all fall short. Now, actually, there, there is one exception. There is actually one human being who stood before God based on this test and won, who was approved. Who was that? It was Jesus. That's why this test is not hypothetical. It is a real test. There is a person who really got an A plus on this test, Jesus Christ. He merited from God the Father love and approval and honor and glory because he lived a truly, absolutely perfect life. But none of the rest of us do. All of the rest of us, without exception, fall short because none of us gets anywhere close to perfect. Now that seems clear enough. I think Paul has made a very convincing case that the self-righteous man is as guilty as everyone else. And yet Paul can still imagine one more objection. He can imagine some guy standing up in his audience and saying, yeah, Paul, that's a really hard standard. I, I know that that's a really hard standard, but wait, Paul, I'm a religious man. Don't I get special treatment? 
I spend time with God, I pray, I read his Bible, I go to church. Don't I get special treatment from God? This is what lawyers would call special pleading. The defendant is pleading for special privileges before the judge. I don't want the same standard to apply to me because I have a a favored relationship with the judge. This was especially true of, of Paul's contemporaries, the Jews. The Jews practiced special pleading before God. They believed that because they were Jews, they had a special status in God's eyes. They wouldn't be judged like everyone else. They're the chosen people. They have the covenants. They have the law of the Old Testament. So surely they must get special treatment before God. Is that true? Well, Paul answers that in the next section of our passage. Starting in verse 12, Paul overturns their special pleading. Pick it up in verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. That's the big principle. That's the big idea. The Jews, these are the people who have the law. So remember, here Paul is specifically addressing the Jew, but it applies to any religious person. Any person who believes because they have God's word, because they come to God's house, they must have special privileges. Paul says no. Any person who sins will be condemned. And then Paul explains that in verses 13 through 16. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, and that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternatively accusing or else defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Here's what Paul is saying. There is no partiality with God. There is no favoritism with God. God will judge every person based on the revelation they have received. For the Jews and for us who have God's word, we'll be held accountable to this. We know what God said in scripture, so we'll be held accountable to practice this. Uh, But what about the person who never gets the Bible, who never gets God's word? Well, they'll still be held accountable, not to this. They'll be held accountable to their innate sense of right and wrong. It's actually really, really significant what Paul says about human beings here. This is the primary place I go in the Bible to prove that whether they'll admit it or not, all human beings know the difference between right and wrong. God built it into us. We know it at an innate level. We know what's right and what's wrong. Our conscience directs us. When we do that which is wrong, our conscience convicts us. When we do that which is right, our conscience approves us. Even if we never had scripture, God holds us accountable to whatever we know to be right and wrong. So there is no special privilege for the Jew. There is no special privilege for the religious man. Everyone is held responsible by God for what they knew. And anyone who sinned will be condemned. That's all of us. Anyone who sins, whether against the word of God or against their innate sense of right and wrong, will be condemned. So there is no special pleading allowed. The Jew does not get a special place at God's judgment seat. We all stand before God on equal terms. And then finally, verse 16 is really the nail in the coffin of the self-righteous man. This whole time he's been trying to claw his way out of the coffin to show that he is righteous, to show that he merits life. This is the final nail in his coffin, verse 16 again, on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. That verse is really bad news for the self-righteous guy. Really, really bad news for the religious man. You see, you can practice righteousness outwardly. You can look righteous to other people. There there are people, you probably know them, men and women who are upstanding citizens. 
As far as you can tell in their life, they are incredibly righteous people. They're kind, they're truthful, they're gentle, they're giving, they're merciful, really, really good people outwardly. And yet Paul says that's not what matters. Because God doesn't just see the veneer. He sees the inside. He sees the thoughts and the attitudes. God sees past the facade of our self-righteousness. He sees past the facade of our religious practices into the heart, into the attitudes and emotions and thoughts that condemn us. So there is no ground for the self-righteous man to stand on. He has no hope if he's trying to stand before God and earn God's approval. He can't do it because he would have to be perfect in deed and in thought every day for all of his life and no one but Jesus does that. So this passage is pretty bad news. It's what it's designed to be, really, really bad news. Paul's goal in this passage is to make a self-righteous person absolutely hopeless. That's the goal. Crush the guy who thinks he can earn God's love. Absolutely crush him. Leave him hopeless of ever earning merit before God because only when he's hopeless, only when he's crushed, will he be desperate. That's what Paul wants in this passage. He wants to make us desperate for God's help. He wants to convince us that there is absolutely nothing that we can do to earn or merit God's love. He wants us desperate so that we will reach out to God with a cry for help because there is good news. Not in this passage. This passage is all bad news. But before this passage, remember what we read in the summary verses, 116 and 17. 116, there's good news. It's the gospel. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. What does the gospel say? The good news of the gospel is that the one and only human being who faced God's test and passed who actually got an A plus on God's test, that is Jesus, God's son, the only person who ever lived a righteous life willingly took our sins upon himself and died to pay the penalty of our F. The F we deserve on God's test, he paid that for us. He paid that for us and then he rose from the dead, conquering sin and death on our behalf. And now when we believe in Jesus, to use language Paul will use later in the book, Paul will tell us when you believe in Jesus, you are placed in Christ. In Christ, really significant prepositional phrase in the Bible. It means that what is true of Jesus is now true of you. The moment you believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead, all of the things that are true of Jesus become true of you, including his A+. The A plus he earned from God is now put upon your life. The stamp of righteous that he actually merited from God is now given to you in grace. Your F is replaced. It's gone. You now have A plus on your life because you are in Christ. His status now applies to you through faith. That's the great news of the gospel. If you're here this morning and you realize that you have been approaching God in the self-righteous way, you've been trying to earn or merit God's approval, you want to do good work so that you can merit going to heaven when you die, the good news is you can be finished with that. You don't have to try to earn God's love or approval. You don't have to try to earn heaven anymore because you'll never get there. You can set that aside and simply receive all of that as a free gift. That's what God is offering you this morning, free gift. It's right here. Eternal life, forgiveness, glory, hope, honor is all yours through Christ if you believe. If you lay down your attempts to earn his love and simply receive it in faith by believing that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead. That's the great news this morning. If you're stumbling over that, if that's just too hard for you to believe, come talk to me or someone else here afterwards today. Really, really good news if you will simply believe. Now, for those of us who have believed, 
this passage no longer applies to us. The condemnation, the wrath of this passage doesn't apply to us any longer. We have an A plus on our lives. We pass the test, not by what we've done, but by what Jesus did for us. And yet this passage does have an application, a principle for us, because even as believers, it is so easy to slip back into this old way of thinking. Even though we have been saved by grace, it's so easy to forget that and to live as if we were saved by works. I did that my first couple years at A&M. There's no other way to describe it. I lived as a Christian legalist. Even though I was saved by grace, every day I tried to earn God's merit. I tried to prove myself worthy to God. I would take a shower before I go to bed every night. And I remember in the shower for two years, every night for two years, I would go through my checklist. Did I work hard at school today? Did I avoid immorality? Did I do X, Y, and Z? I would go through my checklist. And on days when I passed the checklist, when I succeeded, what would I feel? Pride. I feel better than all the other kids in this dorm. Man, I'm doing a lot better than them. That's great. I feel good about myself. But what about my bad days? When I didn't check off the things on my list, I'd feel horrible. I go to bed beating myself up at night, feeling worthless. Now, avoiding immorality and working hard at school are good things. That's good that I was trying to do that. But it was not good that I tied my worth to those things. It was not good that I believed that every day I had to earn righteousness. I had to earn God's love through my works. That was not good. That's a graceless existence. That's a horrible way to live. God saved me by grace. What I needed to know in that moment is no matter what I did on any particular day, I had an A plus in the eyes of God because I was in Christ. And even on my best days, I was not adding anything to Jesus's A+. And even on my worst days, I was not subtracting anything from his A+. I was already infinitely loved and approved by God simply because I was in his son by faith. When I remembered that, when I came to understand that, now obedience comes out of thankfulness. I obey God because look what he's done for me. It's out of gratefulness. It's freeing. It's joyous. It's not out of obligation anymore. Now, there may be some of you here this morning who need to learn that lesson. For too long, you have been trying to live by the list. You have been trying to live through your efforts to, even if you're saved by grace, to earn God's love each and every day by living up to some standard. You need to understand that will never work. That is not what God wants of you. What God wants you to know right now is that if you have trusted in his son for salvation, you are already infinitely and unconditionally loved. You are completely and forever and unchangeably approved by God because you're in Christ. You need to know that. You need to own that. Obedience should be out of joy, out of thankfulness to God, not out of obligation. You're already an A plus in God's eyes. Let's pray for God's help to remember that. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning and thank you for the truths of this passage. Father, we confess that all of us are sinners that all of us have fallen miserably short of your standard of righteousness. We praise you and thank you that Jesus passed the test, Lord, but we lament over the fact that we have failed. But Father, we thank you that in grace you have offered a way of salvation, that in grace you place us into your son, Jesus Christ, the moment that we believe what is true of him becomes true of us. Thank you for that, Lord. And Father, we pray for anyone in this room this morning who who has not yet trusted in Jesus Christ, who's still trying to earn it. Maybe they came to church this morning because they thought it would make them more righteous if they came. Please, Father, open their eyes. Remove the veil. Let them see that your love, your approval, your righteousness is not something to earn. It is a free gift to be received. 
Please help them to believe that. Please help them to trust that Jesus died for their sins and rose from the dead. And for those of us who have believed that message, Lord, we pray that you would help us to live by grace. Help us to live lives that are full of grace and mercy. Help us to live lives that that aren't seeking to earn your approval day to day, but simply live in the joy and peace of knowing that you love us unconditionally, infinitely, forever. Thank you so much for what you've done for us through Jesus Christ. Please work through us to glorify him. In his name we pray, amen. God bless you guys. See you next week.